Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Desiring the Kingdom, a study of the books of First and Second Kings. Here's Pastor Nick. Okay, First Kings chapter 17. We're currently in a study of the books of First and Second Kings that we're calling Desiring the Kingdom. As we're looking at these earthly kings and earthly kingdoms and their failings and shortcomings, it stirs up within us a desire for the true king, Jesus, and his eternal kingdom. Right now, specifically, we're in a section of the book that is, for me, the most exciting. This is the life of Elijah the prophet. So 1 Kings 17, would you please bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word that it speaks to us, Lord. It's thousands of years old. Lord, you, you have eternal truths in there which are incredibly relevant to us today. And so, Lord, may we hear them. May we understand them. May we receive them. Lord, we ask that you would minister to us by your spirit through your word today. Lord, we want to receive everything that you have for us. So, go, Lord, give us soft, malleable, changeable hearts, Lord. Let us be receptive, humble people as we hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you, have you ever experienced something in your life which caused you to question, is God really there? Have you ever experienced something in your life that caused you to question, is God really there? Maybe it wasn't so much that you questioned God's existence as you questioned whether or not God really cares. Maybe something happened and you wondered, if God can do anything, then why didn't he prevent this thing from happening? Maybe you wondered, if God really loves me, then how could he have let this happen to me? It's been said that suffering nags us with questions about God in a way that comfort never could. Let me say that again. Suffering nags us with questions about God in a way that comfort never could. In our study today, we're going to see a woman who suffered a tragedy, and we're going to see how that tragedy affected her faith. We're going to see how it caused her to ask questions about God and about herself. But here's the other thing we're going to see. We're going to see that tragedy is not the end of this story. That's the good news of the gospel, by the way, in your life and my life as well, is that with God, tragedy doesn't get the final word. The title of today's message is From Death to Life. From Death to Life. And we'll be picking up at verse 17 of chapter 17 in 1 Kings. Here at the end of 1 Kings 17, you know, every week I've been giving you a sentence. And that sentence is kind of our outline for how we're going to study this passage. And as we do that, what I would love for you to do, you know, is memorize that sentence or write it down somewhere. You know, if you need a note card, there's some in those uh, pockets in the row in front of you. You can write that down, memorize it, and then later on today when somebody asks you, hey, what did you talk about at church? You're going to be able to say, well, actually, here's what we talked about at church, and here's what it is this week, okay? As the widow of Zarephath's son is raised from death to life, we see a picture of what Jesus does for us and the hope we have in the gospel. We're going to work our way through that sentence as we study this passage this morning. So, as the widow of Zarephath's son. In 1 Kings 17, verse 17, it begins with these words, after this, or after these things, which means that in order to understand what's about to happen next, we have to read it in light of what happened immediately before this, which is what we studied last week. So what was it that happened immediately before this 
this verse. Well, at the beginning of chapter 17, Elijah the prophet burst onto the scene. Remember, these were the days of King Ahab, the wicked king of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. Check that cheat sheet if you're curious about northern kingdom, southern kingdom, who's who. We, we want you to have that as a resource. These were the days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel when they ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. And during this time, people had begun worshiping a pagan deity called Baal or Baal. You know, Baal was thought to be the God who controlled the weather and specifically the rain. And if you were a farmer in the Middle East, rain was a resource that was more valuable than gold. See, the more rain you had, the more prosperous you would be. And so the people began worshiping Baal, the pagan god of rain, out of this desire to be prosperous. One of the ways that Baal was worshipped was through the offering of child sacrifices. People would literally take their children, lay them on an altar, and kill them in a desire to please Baal so that he would send them rain for their crops so they could be prosperous. It was a sick, detestable practice. And the one person who promoted the worship of Baal more than anybody else in all of Israel was King Ahab himself. And it was into this situation that Elijah the prophet came, sent by God with a message to show the people that Baal was no God at all, that he had no power. And Elijah came and he declared, there will be no more rain. Remember, Baal is the God of the rain. And Elijah said, there will be no more rain in Israel again until you turn from Baal and turn back to Yahweh. This was a major challenge to Baal, but also it was a major challenge to King Ahab because the entire economy of Israel depended on rain. So a drought would have been devastating for everyone in the country. It would have devastated the economy. You know, C.S. Lewis, he said this. He said, we can ignore pleasures, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's what this drought was. It was a drastic measure in which God was trying to get the people's attention so they would see the error of their ways and they would turn back to him. But as Elijah delivered this message, sent by God, doing what God called him to do, well, let's just say King Ahab wasn't very happy about it. And Elijah had to run for his life. He became a fugitive, a man on the run. Initially, he hid out and lived in a ravine. In this ravine, there was a brook flowing through it, and he had shade in the ravine. He had water in the ravine. But again, remember, there's a drought happening. And so as it's, this drought is progressing, there's no rain. The brook dried up. And when that happened, God told Elijah, he said, okay, now I want you to go to a house, to the house of a widow in a place called Zarephath. And she will provide you with food and with shelter. Who was this widow of Zarephath? Well, this place, first of all, Zarephath, this was in the area of Sidon. This was Canaanite territory. In other words, this was outside of Israel. And this woman was a Gentile woman. Now, of course, it was safer for Elijah to be outside of Israel since King Ahab wanted him dead. But why this village? Why would God send him to this particular village? Why would God send him to the house of this particular woman? You see, God didn't send Elijah here only to take care of Elijah's needs. No, God sent Elijah here because he wanted to do something in the heart and the life of this woman who he sent Elijah to. God wanted to draw this woman into a relationship 
with him. Now, how do we know that? Here's how we know it. Because when Elijah arrived at her house, this woman was so poor, she was literally about to starve to death. She didn't even have enough food to feed herself and her son, much less to feed Elijah also. See, if, if all God cared about was just feeding Elijah, well, he could have sent him to any other family in the area, a rich family, a middle-class family, a family that had abundant food, something to share. But God sent him to this poor widow who didn't even have enough food for herself because God wanted to do something in her life. And God called this poor, starving woman to feed Elijah, which is a pretty weird thing to do, right? Except here's why it wasn't weird. Because this calling from God to feed Elijah, it came with a promise. God promised that if this woman would obey him and do what he was telling her to do, then God would make sure that she would never lack what she needed. She would always have enough for herself and for her son. Now this took an, an tremendous amount of faith on her part to do what God was calling her to do. When Elijah came to her, she only had enough flour and enough oil to make one more meal. But as she trusted in God, as she had enough faith to trust God and do what he said, God provided for her miraculously. And every day, multiple times a day, she would reach her hand into that jar of flour. She would take that jar of oil and turn it over. And miraculously, God had provided and there would be just enough to make that next meal. And you can imagine how as every day passed, as every meal passed, this woman's faith in God was increasing and growing. You can just imagine those happy days in that house when they lived in that constant miracle of God's provision multiple times a day. Every meal they ate was a miracle from God. And when Elijah, when he had arrived at this house, remember, they were on the verge of starvation. And they must have thought, wow, God sent this man to us. God sent us this grace. God really does love us. He saw our terrible situation. He had compassion on us, and he saved us from certain death. This woman was growing in faith and in this symbiotic relationship with God, which is why it's so surprising what we read in verse 17, that after this, after this miracle, this ongoing miracle of provision, after this woman doing what God had told her to do, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. The, son, the woman's son died. Understand, the death of this child was a double blow because this woman was a widow. See, not only did she love her son, and, and of course it's unnatural and it's terrible for a parent to ever have to bury a child, but remember this, as a widow, he was her only hope for the future. There was no social safety net. There was nothing to take care of her when she was old. As a widow, her only hope to be taken care of and provided for in her old age was that her son would grow up and get a job and get married and be able to take care of her in his home as she got older. But when the boy died, it was like everything was shattered. Her past, her present, her future, it was all shattered. She had already lost her husband and now her only child. And she's facing this tragedy. And as she's facing it, understand her faith is being put to the test. After all, if God really loved her, why would he let this happen to her? You see, here she was doing everything that God had asked her to do. And this is how God repays her? By letting her son die? Couldn't God have prevented this from happening? Didn't God know how much she loved this son? Didn't God know how much she needed him in her life? 
You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. We have implemented procedures to ensure your safety as we gather for worship and studying God's Word. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person, at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. Look at her response in verse 18. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. In her grief and her distress and her sorrow, in, in the pain of that moment, she blames Elijah for the death of her son. She says, you did this to me. Ever since you came here, it's been nothing but problems. You've come here and you've ruined my life. This would have never happened if you hadn't come here. Now, of course, we know that's not true. If Elijah hadn't come here, they would have starved to death a long time ago. But in her grief, in the pain of the moment, this woman is trying to make sense of why this tragedy has taken place. Guys, many people, maybe many of us, have this assumption that if you're doing what God wants you to do, if you're obeying with God, if you're walking in the will of God, then you're never going to have any hardship in your life. Guys, that's just simply not true. There's so many examples in the Bible of people, like Elijah even himself, who did exactly what God told them to do, what God called them to do, and, and yet they still face hardship and tragedy and suffering in their lives. Guys, for us as believers in Jesus Christ, there is a promise that we will live happily ever after, but that promise is not in this world. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. That's a promise, right? So you can add that to your list of Bible promises, right? That's one that people don't always like to highlight and like write on their mirror at, the, at home, right? Uh, Jesus himself, think about this. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and yet he suffered hardship. He was betrayed by his closest friends. People he loved died. He was hated. He was wrongly accused. Ultimately, he was murdered. He was beaten and put to death in cold blood. We live in a fallen, broken world. And even if you are doing exactly what God has called you to do, you know what? Sometimes businesses fail. Sometimes health fades. Sometimes relationships are broken. Sometimes tragedy strikes. And being a Christian doesn't exempt us from these hardships. What it does give us, it gives us hope, it gives us strength, it gives us comfort, it gives us assurance. But notice what this woman said in verse 18. After blaming Elijah for the death of her son, she then blames herself. Right? She's all over the place. She's trying to make sense of what's going on. She says, well, maybe the reason why God let my son die is because of some sin in my life, because of something I've done. Apparently, there was something in her past that she was ashamed of. She was haunted by guilt because of something in her past. And she's wondering, did God allow my son to die? Did God do this to me to punish me for something I've done in the past? Guys, she's just trying to make sense of what, what's going on and why this happened. Like I said earlier, suffering nags us with questions about God in a way that comfort never could. When we're suffering, we tend to ask questions about God's love, about God's justice, that we don't usually ask when things are comfortable and easy in our lives. Understand, this woman, she's what we might call a new believer, right? She's new to the faith. And, and now her faith 
is being put to the test. Up until this point, her relationship with God has only consisted of her receiving blessings and goodness and faithfulness in her life. But now, with this instance, she's faced with a question. Will she still trust in God in the midst of tragedy? Will she still trust in God when things don't go the way that she hoped they would go? What exactly is her faith in? See, here's the thing, guys. Do you know this? Faith isn't really faith until it's tested. Think about that. Faith is not faith until it's put to the test. It's when you can't clearly see. It's when you don't fully understand. That's when faith is really faith. That's when it's put to the test. The things that you believe about God, let me ask you, the things you believe about God, are they only true when everything is going well in your life? Are they also true when things go wrong? Let's move on to the next part of this sentence. As the widow of Zarephath's son is raised from death to life. Verse 19, Elijah said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chambers where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. It's as if Elijah is trying to transfer his life into the life of this child. Now remember, there's no playbook for this, right? There's no, no book you turn to and says, okay, here's how to raise somebody from the dead. Up until this point in, in biblical history, in human history, no one else has ever been raised from the dead. He's, he's just trying to do something. And so he stretches himself out on this child. There's no precedent for this. It's never happened before. It seems impossible, but Elijah brings this situation to God anyway in prayer. In verse 22, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Just imagine the excitement, the joy that must have filled this home, the thankfulness that filled this widow's heart. Her faith, we read, was strengthened as a result of this great miracle. But maybe you hear this story, maybe you read this story this morning, and you say to yourself, cool story, but so what? Cool story. I'm happy for this lady. But why should I care? What does this story have to do with me and my life? Let me tell you, I want to tell you now what this story has to do with us and our lives. And that's the third part of this sentence. As the widow of Zarephath's son is raised from death to life, we see a picture of what Jesus does for us. A picture of what Jesus does for us. Not only can we relate to the widow in this story, we can also see ourselves in her son. You see, the Bible tells us that apart from Jesus Christ, apart from his saving work, his transforming work in our lives, you know what we are? We're dead. We're dead, guys. Ephesians 2 says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, you might say, dead? I think that, that seems like something I would remember. No, no, no. It's talking about spiritual death. And it's telling this, this, that every single person in the world, this is our default condition, our default spiritual condition, that you are dead spiritually. So while you're mentally and physically alive, your spirit, that part of you that is eternal, that part of you that God created to connect with him is dead. 
And as a result, you're disconnected from God and you are without hope in this world. This boy's story, guys, this is your story. This is my story. You and I, we were dead apart from Jesus. You know what the worst part about being dead is? It's that there's nothing you can do about it, right? When you're dead, someone might yell at you, sit up, stand up, pull yourself together. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to fix that condition. This boy was powerless to help himself. And the same is true of us on a spiritual level. When you are dead spiritually, you are powerless to fix that situation. But check out what it says in Ephesians 2, verse 4. You were dead, but God, right? The two most beautiful words in the English language. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You were dead, but God loved you so much that he intervened on your behalf and God made you alive. He transferred his life to you. Jesus didn't come to make bad people act nice. Jesus came so that dead people could come alive. He transferred his life into you, into you and me. It says in Ephesians 2, verse 3, that actually the biggest problem with being spiritually dead is this. It means that we are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, those mistakes that you've committed in your life, those sins that you've carried out in your lifetime, you'll have to answer to God for those things. Every one of us, at different times and different ways, we have broken God's laws, and as a result, we have heaped up for ourselves judgment. What you need, what I need, what we need, is a new life. Think about this. You can't put a dead person on trial, can you? And the good news of the gospel is that the old you, the rebel, the guilty one, was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ and died. And because of Jesus' resurrection, you can be born again to new life. That means that in Jesus, you receive a new identity and a new destiny. No longer are you a child of wrath, but you become a child of God. And it tells us in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, that God raises you up and seats you in the heavenly places with Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. That's talking about eternal life. Rather than judgment, you get to experience the riches of God's grace forever. That's what Jesus does for us. This boy's story is a picture of that for us. And it goes on to say this in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Grace is a gift. It's a resurrection. It's a new life. It's an eternal hope. It's God's gift to you. You don't earn it. How could you? You were dead. It's what he did for you. And then it says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, 
visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.